Welcome to RMBC Life from Share Cancer Support, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and in today's episode, we sit down with individuals from the LGBTQ2S plus community. In 1980, Audre Lorde published her groundbreaking cancer journals and wrote, Often when I keep thinking, I have cancer. I'm a Black, lesbian, feminist poet. How am I going to do this now? Where are the models for what I'm supposed to be in the situation? But there were none. This is Audrey. You're on your own. Audrey Lord described herself as Black, lesbian, mother, warrior, poet, and her words 40 years ago, unfortunately, still resonate with the LGBTQ2S plus community today as they look for role models within the NBC community while living with this disease. So in the spirit of Audrey Lord, the team here at our NBC Life podcast wanted to provide space to the LGBTQ2S plus community living with NBC for our final episode of the season. Co-host Natalia Green leads our discussions. First up, we meet Kimiko Tobimatsu, a Canadian human rights lawyer and an award-winning graphic novelist whose book, Kimiko Does Cancer, tells the story of her breast cancer diagnosis at the age of 25 and the challenges she faced as a queer person living with breast cancer. So welcome to RNBC Life and congratulations on the publishing of your stunning graphic memoir, Kimiko Does Cancer. So first, tell us about your diagnosis of early stage breast cancer and how that experience led you into writing and creating this memoir. Yeah, so it's been six years now. Actually, March 17th, I I treat as my anniversary because that's when I got my lumpectomy. But I was 25 at the time that I got the diagnosis. I just found the lump myself and went through a series of appointments, got the diagnosis, all the rest. I didn't have to do chemo, but I did radiation and and the lumpectomy. And then I've been on a mix of drugs to get rid of my estrogen, basically, because the cancer was estrogen positive. So that's been since diagnosis being on those. In terms of starting to work on the book, initially it was me doing very rudimentary stick figure drawings as I just was absorbing all these odd experiences, being in this whole new medical world that felt very straight and very white. And so as I tried to process that, I was doodling and showing my partner at the time. But then at the same time, as I was reading up more and more and trying to find folks that I could relate to, there wasn't a whole lot out there. And that's when it switched from, okay, this maybe is not just about me, but there might be a gap that needs to be filled in terms of what narratives we're hearing. And if that was going to happen, then my stick figure drawings maybe wouldn't cut it. And so I I started looking for illustrators. And that's when I I found Keith, who is a a brilliant illustrator. And we worked together on the book. It's awesome. The book is amazing. I I read it before when it was first published. And then preparing for this interview, I reread it, taking notes at the same time. The whole time, 
I'm just like, yes, <laughs> people do say that to me. I am thinking this and someone's doing this. So the whole time, yes, Kimiko, you're saying that. That's the thing. Like we want to see the stories and it's not just, okay, we've all had breast cancer, but a certain politic. And so to connect with people on that level too. Absolutely. Now in your memoir, you know that the breast cancer, and you obviously just said it right now that it's overwhelming cis and heteronormative, straight, white, and feminine. It seems that the construct of the pink ribbon at times marginalizes certain groups and communities in this breast cancer world. For instance, in the NBC community, we know that the funds raised for breast cancer rarely go to NBC issues. Mm -hmm. Were you able to find a support community in Toronto where you live that helped you at the time of your diagnosis? Yeah, so I've had a, a hodgepodge of, of groups. There was a 20s and 30s, so a young adult group that I went to out of Gilda's house. And then there was another group out of Wellspring that was a lesbian support group. So both of those were helpful. But in some ways, I needed them to intersect because being young also comes with different types of issues than maybe the average cancer patient, you know, typically is 50 plus when you're young and you're dealing with fertility and different relationship issues and things, you're just at a different stage in your life. And so the types of issues that are of most importance to you might be different than someone who's older. So the critique that I draw of the cancer community, it's not to say that there isn't a lot of value in what's out there and that I didn't benefit from it. I just think that we need more supports, more diverse supports so that we're not selecting different parts of our identity in order to find uh, help. That totally makes sense. We do appreciate how you highlighted the mistrust with doctors that exists with queer people and people of color. This issue is rarely spoken about in the cancer community. Did you feel as a queer person of color, you found a mistrust in your own health care when you first started seeing doctors? Yeah. So the example I paint in the book is an experience talking to my family doctor several years ago about whether I should get a pap test. And her response was, no, you don't need to bother. You're not having sex with men, which is bad medical advice. There are many reasons why even if you're not having sex with men, you should get a pap test. So that's some of the perspective that I was coming into this with. And I'm fortunate that I'm in a professional field. I have parents who are also articulate and able to advocate for me. So Together, I felt like I was able to push for getting the types of answers that I was looking for, but certainly I was asking those questions because I did have a certain level of mistrust, but I'm very fortunate in Canada, you know, we've got universal health care, so I was able to get not only free, but high quality care, but it partly was through my advocacy and pushing back as they draw certain assumptions around breast reconstruction or what my fertility path might look like. As far as I'm aware, all my doctors were straight. And certainly that was the impression that I was getting in the assumptions they were drawing about how breast cancer might affect me. It's so important for people to recognize that this is a big issue because so many of us, especially like, for example, I'm a daughter of an immigrant and just seeing how healthcare providers have treated my parents and going to appointments with them, it made me want to advocate for myself even more when I was at the doctor. Like, you need to earn my trust. And mm -hmm. I don't necessarily believe everything you're saying. So 
I, I like your example that you put into the book. Thanks. Yeah, no, I think trans folks in particular definitely face a lot of barriers. And when we think about breast cancer and other reproductive cancers, that the discourse, both medical community and then also in you know support groups, it's so much about femininity and potential loss of femininity and women. It's always talked about women and not necessarily in an inclusive way. And that's immediately a barrier if you're trying to have conversations with your doctor about if, if you're on testosterone and you need to go off it, all those kind of questions that you need to have a very trusting relationship with your doctor to have. And unfortunately, many folks don't. I asked Kimiko about the quality of care she received after and during her diagnosis. She fully acknowledged that because of both her personal privilege and Canada's healthcare system, she's able to receive great and free health care. However, she had to challenge the presumptions made by healthcare providers on her choice of care. Here's Kimiko. I do think I received high quality care. I think the challenges were around the presumptions about what type of care I would want. And, and so me having to advocate for myself. Example of breast reconstruction. If I needed a mastectomy, the assumption was, okay, then we're just going to fit you with a new set of breasts. And me internally thinking, I don't know if I would want that. And so I think it's those types of issues that were present that required me to push back a bit. But I wouldn't say my experience is one where I got a late diagnosis because I was queer or there was a, a certain type of treatment that wasn't offered to me, which certainly we see in Black communities in particular, where there are those really stark gaps. But I think that there was an ignorance around what the pressing issues might be for me. Kimiko and I spoke about a movement to support those who choose to go flat, a term used for those that decide not to do reconstruction after a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, and if there was a growing support of that movement in Canada. Yeah, no, I think we are starting to see more of that. And partly Canada just being smaller, we get a lot of cultural references from the States. And so I think yeah. that some of the movement in the States is then crossing the border, which is a great thing. And so there is more discussion. Just, you might not want to have another surgery, right? There's many reasons completely unattached to your gender identity about why you might not want to get reconstruction. Uh, my experience six years ago was that wasn't really part of the discussion with my doctor. I, I think that just anecdotally, I'm getting the sense there's more of that conversation happening, but still patients are having a hard time to advocate for that. And there's stories of People telling their doctors, I want aesthetic flat closure. I'm not going to get reconstruction at any point. Tie me up nicely. And them waking up and there's been flaps left for yes. future reconstruction, which is abhorrent. So I think we have a long way to go, but I do think that conversation is starting to enter the medical field more. I've heard these same stories and they're like literally horror stories just yeah. about people that flaps are left over in case they want to expanders or implants yeah. put in and you're just asking that patient to come back again for another surgery. Talk about consent in your medical care. That's right. out the window. Or that it's even an option, that it's not one of the three options or four options that are even laid out to you. So often people just don't know what to say to someone who's dealing with breast cancer. And this situation can get even worse, I think, when you're dealing with stage four advanced or even metastatic breast cancer. People often say the worst things. And I think they often say the worst things to younger 
patience. What is one of the worst things someone said to you related to your breast cancer experience? I'm lucky I've got a caring group of friends. So there's nothing that was really out to lunch, but I think it's the more nuanced, well-intentioned comments that often come around. Like, I don't really agree with this language of cancer being a battle. If you're strong, you're going to win it. That sort of ideal. Then if you don't win it, it means you're not strong. And, you know, so glad that, that it's over. Well, it's not over. So I think there's just a certain level of ignorance. And I'm sure I've made those comments before I had cancer. And sometimes that ends up silencing the person who's still having ongoing struggles. And this actually leads me to my next question. So a shared experience that really stuck out to me throughout your novel was dealing with the toxic positivity that people tend to throw at you while you're dealing with breast cancer. And again, I think it's especially true with people diagnosed with cancer at a young age. And examples would be like, at least you're alive, live each day as if it's your last. And I like that you said, quote, you won't be finding me living each day as if it's my last. That just seems exhausting. And I love that because this is one of the times I was just like clapping at your back. Yes, no. Can you explain how it made you feel when you're being forced to always see the silver lining? Yeah, it's definitely one of the things that ostracized me from the broader cancer community is I want to have the messier conversations about what we're dealing with in our day-to-day lives. And that's not all pretty things. I think we don't talk enough about sex, for example. And because of being in menopause, like any kind of penetration was really painful, continues to be really painful. You're not seeing a a big poster talking about somebody, you know, dealing with painful sex. And I think this feeds back into the pressure to get reconstruction is the image that we often see is of somebody who's gotten reconstruction. So they look how society wants them to look. They're cheering and smiling and doing some fundraiser. But if that is the ideal at first, it silences folks who have metastatic breast cancer for sure. And also people who, and that's going to be most cancer survivors, is have some level of ongoing impact of the cancer on their lives. And just generally in my life, that's the the kind of everything is roses is not sort of my outlook. I'm optimistic, but I think that we need to get into those sort of messier conversations for sure. How did you become okay with not being okay? It's a process and some days are easier than other days. I think when I was in active treatment and I've heard other folks say this as well is a lot of the decisions are getting made for you and you've got to go to these appointments, you've got to get this treatment. And so it can be a little bit robotic. And when I was done the treatment or at least the active treatment, that is when some of it started to flood in a little bit of, oh, this is what I'm going through. And oh, I'm going to have to stay on these meds for years. And so that's when I had to start adjusting. And and one of the first things that involved was my relationship to work and realizing this path that I was on of working all the time, being a lawyer, that might not be compatible anymore with my health. And so going down to four days a week was one of the changes that I had to make. And I I think capitalism and productivity and working through that relationship and then going to therapy was huge for me in adjusting to that. My therapist talks about the first time we met and her experiences in trauma. And I said, I don't know if I fit into your area of expertise, 
I don't necessarily identify someone who's had trauma. And she said, you had breast cancer. <laughs> That's a form of trauma. I think because I came out the other side in some way, at least my prognosis is good, felt, okay, I'm better off than lots of folks. So I should just be grateful. But sometimes when we're overly grateful, it means that we're also silencing our experiences. And the silence part is accurate, where if people are expecting you to look at the silver lining all the time, you're diminishing to that one person to only being able to feel one feeling, yeah. which is being happy, being grateful. And cancer is complicated. I mean, life is complicated in general. And when I was preparing for this interview, I was reading about toxic positivity and I came across an article from the Huffington Post and there was a social worker on there saying that, you know, a positive attitude can take you a long way. It's great to live life optimistically and it can help you heal some things. But if you are just saying you're positive when you're not, it does more harm to you mentally and it can physically if you're not acknowledging the other feelings and emotions that you can be experiencing. So you talk about navigating romantic relationships during and post-cancer. What is dating like post-cancer? So I broke up with my partner a year after diagnosis. I didn't date for, for a while. And then I was starting to date again a year later. And it comes up fairly early on, also because it changed certain things about how I approached work and whatnot. But then when you're getting into, okay, are we going to have sex? Then you'll need to know the kind of specifics around what my body does and doesn't do now. And of course, this conversation looks a lot different if you're straight and, and have a male partner. All my partners have been great about it, but it's that internal insecurity and like around getting wet. That really changed once I was on these meds. And so it's just a bit of an awkward conversation that you need to have. And I think being young, everything was just simpler before. And then suddenly you're having to have these more complicated conversations that are very new rather than if you get menopause in your 50s or 60s, and let's say you're with a, a partner, it's a gradual thing that you're growing old together and bodies are changing versus, okay, we're young, we're going on early dates and I'm telling you about <laughs> how my vagina has changed since getting cancer. <laughs> like, listen, I'm 25, my vagina is 55, yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> so cool it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's exploration and getting used to your new body. And for example, masturbation, that's something. And I think for women in particular, we grow up being shamed around that. And it's still something that I can be embarrassed about, but that's so important when you're learning your body again is to figure out, okay, what do you like? What do you not like? What's painful? Because your body is really feeling and doing things a lot differently. Absolutely. Given you've been forced into your premature medication-induced menopause, which I'm like literally having a hot flash right now talking about <laughs> it. <but laughs> I feel you. <laughs> what support or information did you receive about fertility preservation from your medical team? Yeah, so when I first got diagnosed, they referred me to a fertility clinic because at that time we didn't know also if I was going to do chemo and, and what impact that could have on my eggs. So I wrestled with that a lot about whether to freeze my eggs because 
I was really unsure if, if I wanted kids. And then let alone spending thousands of dollars to um, keep this possible option open later, I felt some, you know, guilt around. But in the end, I went with keeping that option available to me so that if I do want it and bring it back to relationships, it was a kind of complicated thing to, you know, I'm with a partner who we're not talking about babies. And now I'm like, okay, we're going to freeze these eggs, but trying to be careful to say, no, this is not me saying that we're going to have a kid together, but this is personal to me as something to have later. Pushing conversations in a relationship earlier than you might otherwise have. But yeah, so I froze my eggs and they're sitting there on ice somewhere and we'll see if I come back to them or not. But I was lucky that was part of a conversation early on. Although I also did feel a bit of assumptions or pressure around it's assumed that I'm a young woman, I'm definitely going to want to have kids. And that wasn't necessarily the case. And I think that kind of builds back into the heteronormative assumptions around women will take in childbearing. You're just getting so many choices taken away from you and control of your own body. Of course, it's going to be a difficult decision because I feel like you're right. There are pressures in this cancer world that makes you feel like you have to fall into them or else they make you feel like you'll regret it later mm -hmm. and question mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, I thought about getting a... Uh, hysterectomy to see if that might let my body equalize a little bit more than being on the meds. You know, the doctors were so hesitant to do that. You're young, you might change your mind, whatever. And, and I think a certain amount of caution makes sense when you're taking it to the level of, we don't want to do this for you. You're, you're too young. I think that also removes people's agency to, to decide for themselves. Now, in addition to your wonderful graphic memoir, you also have an Etsy shop which is the most original stationery and cards. Our favorite, and you talked about it in our support group, is I'm sorry you have cancer, but at least, and then it goes dot, dot, dot. But it's totally brilliant, so amazing. Did you create greeting cards before you had cancer? No, not at all. It's funny how cancer has set me on this completely different path. I didn't even identify as someone who was creative before. I had a very complicated relationship to art, but I think now doing the book and then that has connected me to my creative side more. I was a stationary nerd before. Sometimes I buy a greeting card and I almost don't want to send it because I like it so much. But then with the book, Keaton and I were talking about, she's also a stationary nerd and this idea of what's a more authentic card you can give to somebody who's going through right. cancer or something else difficult because a lot of them are just you know, my sympathies. And I think there's more opportunities to, to give to somebody. And I think that kind of cheeky thing, there's humor. We have to laugh as well, at, yes. you know, to get through this. And it depends on your relationship to the person, if you're going to send them that type <laughs> of at least card. But if it's someone you're close to, I think, I think they'll get it. You created like a favor for people who have someone in their life who has cancer. It's like, let me just send this card because <laughs> really I don't know what to say, but let me make it funny that I don't know what to say. Yeah. I think our, our conversation around people may be well-intentioned, but they're saying the wrong thing. And it's just because that hasn't been their experience. And so giving them some ideas around what might be a more helpful thing for, for someone who's going through it to hear. So I think you had mentioned it before that you were a lawyer in our support group. I had no idea what type of law you were practicing. So tell us about your other professional work. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I'm an employment and human rights lawyer. So I'm actually just started a leave. I'm having a lawyer existential crisis. <laughs> Everyone's going through this at various times, but it's a very stressful life. And as much as I've been fortunate to work part time, it still is something that you think about all the time. And so in trying to find balance and what in managing stress in my life, I'm thinking about whether that profession makes sense to stay in or not. That just started two weeks ago. It's very fresh, but yeah, typically I'm helping people who have been fired. And so getting them more notice, or if they've been discriminated at work, advancing a human rights case, if they haven't been accommodated for disability, it's work I find very interesting. And it's nice to feel like I have a, a skill to help people, but then it's just about balancing that with my own self-care. At the podcast, we appreciate your effort to elevate the discussion around screening for younger women and people of color, since it's becoming more and more important to address that issue. In our NBC community, there has been a feeling of marginalization from early stage breast cancer community. Have you found a foundation or an organization or a group that works on eliminating barriers for those types of individuals living through breast cancer or NBC? Is there one that you're really clinged on to that you just thought was to going above and beyond the others? I think every organization and myself included, like we all have room to grow. So there's no organization I would necessarily put a gold stamp on, but I think the conversations are becoming more diverse and are looking more at those underserved populations. And one of them in Canada is Rethink Breast Cancer. And they are particularly for young folks who are getting breast cancer and have been putting a big push also on metastatic breast cancer and how that's really under-resourced and under-researched. So I think they're doing better than most for sure. Now, the pandemic has been hard on everyone, but those who are dealing with health issues like breast cancer, the burden of this time of isolation can be even greater or at least it's felt that way sometimes. You've had a successful launch of your graphic memoir in the middle of this pandemic, so that must feel really amazing. You've talked a lot about this. How have you been taking care of yourself and your mental health during this time? Taking a leave is gonna <laughs> definitely going to help. was also very fortunate. My boss let me the last six months of last year to go down to halftime. So I went even uh, on a more reduced schedule to allow me to promote the book and give it the best chance of success. Trying to control workflow has definitely been a, a big part of that. I've recently started exercising, which I had not done since the beginning of the pandemic. I'm somebody like I like to play soccer and squash. I'm not a gym person. I'm not a home workout person that I realized was starting to impact me and not, you know, getting any exercise. So I've started to do some of that. I've also been trying to be more regular in meditating. I think it's easy to get a really full brain and we're getting inundated with so much information and the politics in the States affecting us as well has been really depressing to see the things that are going on and trying to recenter and realize, okay, what are the things that I can control and, and what can't I? Absolutely. That's, that's really great advice. We love the memoir. It's truly, it's the most relatable thing I've read in a while. Oh, and I, I'm going to introduce it to you. So my support group here in Salt Lake, we also do a book club and sometimes I don't participate because I, I don't have time sometimes to read a full book. And so this was like the perfect thing to read just in a day. And honestly, it's the thing I probably have talked about the most. Like <laughs> I listened to a ton of podcasts and things. I'm like, but this one, it was so relatable. Like I just couldn't put it down. And 
stop talking about it. So thank you so much for writing it. I I think that's one of the the special things about comics and graphic novels is that they're really accessible. And I found, like I've read one novel in the past six months, but I've read a dozen comics with really amazing storylines. And I think culturally there has been kind of, oh, comics is superheroes, it's for kids. But I think we're seeing a lot of great stories come out that way and easy for us to pick up and read unlike a novel. Indeed. Graphic novels are not just for kids anymore. When I was first diagnosed four years ago, Teva Harrison had just published her graphic memoir called In Between Days, and that was one of the books that helped me feel less alone. So often I would read something that she wrote and depicted through her art, and that described my exact experience just the day before. So likewise, your book, Kamiko, has been doing the same thing for Natalia and so many people. I can't wait to get my copy. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad that you all have connected with it and, and can see that. And yeah, in terms of Harrison's book, she's now passed away, yeah. sadly. But yeah, we need those stories that we can connect with. And hopefully you folks will also be, be contributing in various ways and in, in writing your own stories down, because I'm sure people will connect with them too. In continuing our discussion about the LGBTQ plus community and NBC, we were lucky enough to gather a panel of two guests who are living with NBC and who are part of the LGBTQ plus community and the co-founder of Queer and Cancer. My name is Rain Marchita, and I've been living with metastatic breast cancer for three years. Originally diagnosed in 2013. Yeah, I helped get this podcast off the ground, which I, I know at least I will say if I don't say. And done a lot of work as a musician and other things as well. Rainy is being modest. Rainy is an award-winning internationally known musician, sound designer, DJ composer, and product designer based in New York. Her work has been written in many publications, including Time Out London and GQ magazine. She's worked as a performing musician in collaboration with artists like Sarah Silverman and Maggie Chung. My pronouns are she and her. Today I identify as queer, but I often go by lesbian, (laughs) gay, what have you. I've been a member of this community for a long time, I would say since around 1983. And I've always taken an interest in the queer community and been a big supporter of it. In the 80s and 90s, I was a proud member of ACT UP Philadelphia, and I just feel like getting involved as much as I can. Turns out I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer in 
and then moved on to some other things. Mainly, I helped get this podcast off the ground as well. And I also helped facilitate a weekly support group on Zoom for my alma mater. And there, I would say, I have the biggest queer community. It was a women's college, and for some reason, there are a lot of queer people in that group. Here's Bob, a member of our podcast. Hi, I'm Bob DeVito. I live in uh, Connecticut. I'm gay, uh, married to my wonderful husband, Tony. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have two children, our two cats. (laughs) And I was diagnosed originally with stage 3A male breast cancer in spring of 2012. And I was diagnosed with stage four after a routine ultrasound. So now I'm stage four uh, with metastatic spread to uh, my chest wall, my second rib bone, at least one lymph node, and my lung. Those were one of the things they were trying to follow is these little spots. I identify as gay. I don't necessarily always use pronouns, but I'm he, his, him kind of guy. My mother had breast cancer when she was uh, alive. She was in her 60s at the time. I didn't know much about breast cancer or what questions to ask at the time or even what was available as far as treatments go. My personal experience with breast cancer came first when I was showering. I found a, a lymph node in my underarm had swollen up to be about the size of a ping pong ball. And I had a sick visit already scheduled with my doctor about a week later. The lymph node resolved itself on its own, but I did suspect that there was a possible connection to cancer. And I noticed that I had a little pea-sized lump near my left nipple. And in my own defense, I did mention it to my primary care doctor, who dismissed it as a cyst or calcium deposit and that we would watch it. I found uh, myself telling him during that sick visit several years later that, hey, you know, that pea-sized lump has grown, and you know, basically he missed the boat on it. And I went for the biopsy, and I was called, told I had breast cancer, and they scheduled me for an in-person visit for the biopsy, and another week passed by, and I was called and told, yeah, you have breast cancer. And I still say that his voice trailed off into the, the Charlie Brown teacher's voice, the wah, 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 wah kind of sound. As he was telling me, you're going to have to do an mastectomy, and we're going to have to take your lymph nodes, and you know, so on and so forth. And I thought three things at the time. One, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And then the other thought I had was, oh, my God, I'm going to be disfigured by a mastectomy and look different. And then the last thought was that, oh, my God, I've got to tell anybody who listened about male breast cancer. And in my search for finding help that Friday afternoon when I was called, I came home, I was sobbing, I was Googling, and I found my way to the Male Breast Cancer Coalition. Never since then, I've been talking to anybody who will listen. We next have Dr. Evan Taylor, who's the co-founder of Queering Cancer, an organization that partners between people with cancer experience, researchers from the University of Alberta, the University of Fraser Valley, and Queen's University. 
Dr. Taylor is an assistant professor in the School of Social Work and Human Services at the University of Fraser Valley. Dr. Taylor's programs of teaching and scholarly activity explore the systemic and institutional context of health equality issues, population health disparities, social determinants of health, and sexual and gender diversity. So welcome, Dr. Taylor. Thank you very much. Uh, I identify as trans, identify as non-binary, identify as queer. So many of the letters in the alphabet soup, I've been in, in that community for, I shouldn't date myself too much, but for 20, 25 years, a very long time, maybe even more. My interest in, in breast cancer comes from a scholarly perspective, but also I lost my grandmother to breast cancer. So it's also uh, a personal interest as well. I did my doctoral dissertation looking at intersectional effects of gender diversity and sexual diversity in how people experience the cancer treatment, how they make decisions about their treatment and how they you know, experience that big sausage making system that happens when folks get into that place. So that's my personal and professional interest. I'm currently an assistant professor in social work and human services at the University of the Fraser Valley. And a lot of my interest in research and teaching is around social determinants of health and health inequities in, in, in the system. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I can't thank you enough for joining us today and creating a dialogue about breast cancer and the LGBTQ plus community. So our first question is for Dr. Taylor. Can you explain how society genders cancer and the barriers people who are LGBTQ plus face in the cancer community? I realized I didn't introduce my pronouns. Uh, I either don't use them or I use they, them. It's a very complicated relationship with gender. And so Bringing this to this question, I think that this is the issue with cancers. We tend to organize cancers into men's cancers and women's cancers, and that leaves the rest of us, you know, in a very odd place. And I think even for folks who do very easily identify as women or men, for those of us who are in the queer community and some of respect, I think that we have a much more complicated relationship to gender, even as, as people who are maybe cisgender but still queer. The expectations of how we perform our sexuality, of how we perform our embodiment, all that sort of stuff, I think has really profound implications on how people experience cancer. As Bob said, that first instinct of I'm going to be completely disfigured, right? That this is a very common experience for folks that they talk about. And it's because of our expectations around gender that are equally, if not disproportionately uh, affecting the LGBTQ alphabet soup of, of folks. I think that that organization into men's and women's cancers is probably one of the, the biggest hurdles that we need to overcome. And it's also related to how we organize our larger society, you know, uh, not just non-binary folks, but also thinking about Indigenous ways of knowing and being in the world where folks are two-spirit or identify outside of those binaries of, of gender or sexuality, that, that we need to kind of break down these binaries a little bit and start to look at the wider spectrum of how folks do identity and embodiment. You hit a great point, Dr. Taylor. I went to a conference a couple of years ago and a lot of the issues that were brought up by members of the LGBTQ plus community were that they don't necessarily feel safe with their healthcare providers. Even though we're all facing the same disease, the unnecessary gendering of everything, like making everything pink, make certain people feel excluded and unwelcome. And it's a very narrow representation of, when you talk about the, the, the coloring of the pink of the breast cancer, never mind that we're completely erasing you know, non-binary folks, men and males with breast cancer, never mind that we're completely erasing those folks, but there's plenty of women that, that don't subscribe to this very narrow definition of, of femininity that might be straight cis women, but they, even they're feeling quite excluded by that sort of, uh, that pinking approach. So yeah, I think we need to be critical of how it is that we uh, pinkwash the entire field of breast cancer. Yeah, that's one of the things that me as a guy with a woman's disease, quote unquote woman's disease, we go into 
these women's centers for our, our mammograms and our ultrasounds. And it's all pink and pretty, and you're given a pink gown. And it, I think it's just so marginalizing for us. I can only imagine walking into a setting where you're at a very vulnerable state because you're being examined and you're in because you have cancer, which is the word we don't want to hear when it comes to our diagnosis. And you don't feel welcome at those doors. So I I can't imagine how it feels. When I was originally diagnosed and we were talking about lumpectomies, mastectomies, figure out all of that, it was just this automatic assumption that I would want reconstruction, just right off the bat. But it was just this automatic assumption that I would want to have a boob job, really. And, oh, by the way, you can have a tummy tuck, too. And then you can get life on your hip. And first of all, it's a really big surgery, what they're talking about. And so many things were coming at me in my own personal experience so quickly. And then I had a friend um, who was a trans man, and he was like, oh, you could just get top surgery. <laughs> and it was a very difficult thing. And I didn't actually feel like I was aligned with one or the other, but I was definitely put off by the whole, you need to look good in the traditional magazine way of how femininity is represented. And it was a little annoying. And then I thought, if they don't like the way I'm presenting already, when do we get to the, and who's your partner who's going to look after you? And then (laughs) it it gets really complicated. And I wonder what things would have been like if that kind of stuff had been removed, or at least just here are your options, here are the best medical outcomes, and that kind of a thing. Going forward, and people not projecting onto me. Were you offered during your reconstruction to not have implants or deep or just go flat? No, it did not come up. And I didn't ask either. Do you think you would have gone another way if that option was presented to you? Possibly. I was deferring to experts at the time. So, you know, I'm not sure. I don't really know. I think top surgery would have been different and easier to recover from, actually. It's different to say top surgery versus double mastectomy without (laughs) reconstruction. Because top surgery, people are going to be making chest material, maybe that looks like male or something, or that. That's a different kind of approach that doesn't have to do with cancer necessarily. But yeah, no one mentioned the word top surgery except for my trans man friend. You know, what you're saying resonates with me. When I was talking with my breast surgeon, we talked about having just the left side done, the affected side. Or did I want to do both? Mm-hmm. And I chose just the one side and said, well, we can always do it later. So when I went in for my first consult with a plastic surgeon, I was her first man. She'd never done plastic surgery or reconstruction on a male. She didn't know at the time whether or not there were implants available for men or how that would even work. And she, she, she handed me a female wow. breast implant to look at. 
and, yeah, and I'm like looking at this thing, and she's talking at me, and we're talking, and I'm like playing with this breast implant just out of nervousness. And I said, here, take this back. <laughs> but yeah, she had taken photos, and she called me the next day before she even had her first surgery of the day. And she said, you know, I was looking at your photos last night and considering your case. And she says, you're a bigger guy. You got a little man boob going on. She says, I think that I can use your existing tissue to create, re, rebuild your left side so at least it's flat and not concave. I believe it's called a butterfly procedure. And so that's what we did. She took off the top layer of dermis with the hair follicles and all on both sides of the incision after my breast surgeon did her thing and got the report of clear margins. Then to have two raw edges that she could fold in and glue so with stitches so those would grow together. And she used you know, my own tissue, but she was able to make the area flat at least. And for the longest time, and I don't know if stage four did it or if it was before that, but I was always very self-conscious with wearing t-shirts and having a headlight that was always on <laughs> versus no headlight on the other side. So, you know, one nipple sticks out a little bit and the other one is non-existent. And now I just don't care about it. I still don't like the image I see in the mirror. I don't think I ever will. But she did her first male reconstruction. And Beth said it looks pretty darn good. So who knew? I did ask at my follow-up appointment post-stage four with her. And I said, do we want to do a prophylactic mastectomy on my right side? And she said, at this point, there's really no purpose because you already have Mets and we don't know what's going on. So let's leave it alone for now. According to breastcancer.org, a person of any gender can develop breast cancer, considering that the breast tissue isn't gender specific. However, those who are born biologically male have a much lower risk of developing breast cancer. Their lifetime risk of being diagnosed with breast cancer is about one in 833. In comparison to a person born biologically female, they are one in eight. And I think both of these stories, when I've been listening to this, I, I think what's profound is that both of these stories have the same commonality in the sense of neither of the surgeons were prepared for the diversity of embodiment that both of you might have wanted options for or retrospectively would have liked to be given those options. Uh, and I think this is part of that back to the, the gendering of cancer and those narrow definitions. So in our work, uh, I work with a project called Cancer's Margins, and we talked to a lot of trans folks as well about how they experienced their cancer treatment. And this was one of the pieces that came up over and over again as the trans folks were telling us there are these areas of healthcare, so the you know trans health care and then cancer health care are so completely siloed that they're not talking to each other. And so when you go to get your assessment for your gender care, they don't sit and ask you things like, oh, how is this going to affect your cancer risk? What, what are the profiles of your mm -hmm. cancer risk? In some ways it might go up or it might go down depending on you know, your individual situation. 
So there's that piece of the gender care, but then in cancer care, they're not talking to, for instance, people providing gender reassignment surgery. So they're not having conversations about what tissues do we need to preserve if you might want those options in the future, uh, or what tissues can we use in new and creative ways that we could create what you want. And like I said, I'm really interested in the social side of things. It's also about like the person's history. So Rainy, I understand you're a musician. Maybe if someone had a conversation with you and said, oh, maybe actually if you just had one reconstructed, not the other, or maybe if it didn't have reconstruction, if it just went one side, but maybe it really improved your ability to play certain instruments because of the physicality of that. We, we had folks telling us that oh, I had the one side removed and not the other because it improved my golf swing. There's right. lots of reasons. Cultural and individual sensitivity, no matter who you are. <laughs> but I definitely feel like there's just this, a lot of assumptions made, and especially around whether personally I'm gay or straight, people just see what they want to see. Because I'm a minority, but it's not as apparent as a skin color necessarily, where people might hold their tongue or they may adjust what they're going to say for better or for worse. It's invisible. And there's this whole notion of also lesbian invisibility, which is a thing. And it's just interesting. And Getting further into this idea about gender expression, sexuality, I'm a member of some really great support groups, but a lot of them just assume that everybody's straight. Because when you get into a certain demographic of metastatic cancer, anyway, there's a lot of short haircuts. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point, Rainey. According to the American Cancer Society, Lesbians have the richest concentration of risk factors for breast cancer of any subset of women in the world. A 2019 study by Ulrike Bomer, a Boston University School professor of public health, found that women who identify as lesbian or bisexual have less access to post-cancer care as compared to their heterosexual counterparts. And it creates a lag in early detection leading to people getting diagnosed later. Earlier, we met with Kimiko Tobimatsu, and she described medical professionals who suggested she didn't need cervical screenings because she wasn't having sex with men. Did this ever happen to you? Is this an area of concern in your own health? Yeah, actually, in my very early 20s, I went to get a gynecological exam, and there's always a series of questions. So we're talking 80s in Philadelphia. So then it would be like, okay, are you sexually active? Yes. Okay, what kind of contraception do you use? I don't. What? And then a big long lecture there. And then you have to use contraception. And while you have sex, I don't have sex with men. Okay. All right. So we're going to do a cervical exam. And they said, oh, well, don't worry. You can't get cervical cancer anyway because I don't have sex with men. And so, okay. But I knew that was not true. A lot of people probably don't. A lot of people probably would never even go to get it from a gynecological exam. It's very traumatic for a lot of people. But, yeah, again, comes back to cultural and individual sensitivity. Educate yourself. Listen to people. I just, I don't know. I couldn't believe that. It sounds like it's the assumptions that keep right? Great care is the assumptions of your providers. Well, that's something we know from the research I think is so fascinating is what we know is that people's outcomes are better, their satisfaction 
satisfaction with care is better, and this is specifically among LGBT plus you know, patients, that their satisfaction and their outcomes of the, the care is better overall, and only in relation to their disclosure. So when they are disclosing their identity to their providers, their care outcomes and satisfaction is better. However, what we know is that the vast majority of people who are known in their sexual or gender identity to their providers, they're out in that way, if you want to use that language, that the vast majority of folks who are out to their providers, they initiate the conversation, not the provider. And so this puts us in an interesting position now when folks are not being offered this opportunity to disclose, we're setting them up from the very beginning that we know that there's a better likelihood that they'll have crap care. And so who's that responsibility really on? And it's exactly what you said. The question is, are you having sex? Yes. And it's an immediate assumption of what kind of sex it is, who it's with, what it looks like. And those could be all very different. You know? And then we get into to talk about trans people. And I appreciate Rain talking about the, the gynecological exam. And so for you know trans folks, we know that trans folks are putting off those exams. We know they're delaying them. We know they're avoiding that kind of care because, yes, it's traumatic. But then there's also that added misgendering. There's also the like, well, welcome to your gynae exam, sir. Here's your pink mm-hmm. gown. And what mm-hmm. that does to somebody, their, their trauma, their history, right? They're just not coming in for that care. So all of this goes to say that we're set up as an LGBTQ plus community. We're set up from the very beginning to not be asked about our care, to not be welcomed into that care, and to frankly be traumatized by the way the way the care is actually provided to us. That's so true. In fact, I was going to mention that the National Cancer Institute pre-published a study that was released in March of this year, essentially saying that transgendered patients sometimes have the worst diagnosis because they're found in later stages. And probably to your point, Dr. Taylor, about not being comfortable with talking to the providers about certain things or asking for certain screenings, and they're less likely to receive treatment and obviously have like worse survival rates for certain cancer types because their providers aren't asking the right questions. And I think it's aligned with anyone, like patients, especially marginalized patients, it's very difficult for them to be forthcoming with their information because we don't trust the system, right? Yeah, and we talked about this uh, briefly earlier, but just to touch back on that, the intersectional locations that, that folks are in. So one of the things that we found in our research is we were talking to folks about the various levels of identities that they have. And the more levels of identity they had, so maybe they're, they're gay, they're a woman, they're a person of color. We start to, they're maybe they're trans as well or non-binary. We start to add these layers of complexity. And what we heard from folks, especially uh, folks of color and, and lesbians of color, they took actual really concrete steps to reduce the levels of complexity they're presenting to their providers. And as Irene was saying, sometimes they'll just let that short haircut go unnoticed, untalked about, and hopefully you don't make any assumptions or say anything, or maybe I'm not going to bring my partner in with me. We had folks talking to us who were basically it rejected from care in a certain way. And they said, they're sitting in the waiting room and they said, we just felt like we were being treated as we were doing some sort of sit-in. It's because we were lesbians of color sitting in this waiting room asking for care and being really assertive about the need for care. And they felt like they were being, as if they were these radicalized activists that didn't deserve to be there. And so after that, the patient told us, I, I didn't let my partner come to my appointments with me anymore because I didn't want to have that the conversation. I want to reduce the visibility of not only my color, but also my relationship. And I just didn't want to have those conversations. I was worried I would get less good care. And I think that's a really difficult position that we're in where we're seeing the multiplication of marginality as we look at the varying levels of intersectionality and different layers of it. And I think that there's something to be said that queer folks, especially queer folks of color, are saying, you know what I need to do? I need to reduce my complexity to make myself easier for the rest of the world to comprehend and in order to simply survive and get some care because I'm worried 
that I might die if I don't get good enough care. And that's a really, really problematic. It's shocking. Place to yeah. it's, it, it, it should be shocking. But the fact yeah. is, it isn't because we live in this and we know that this is happening. And I would love to say it was shocking. And yet at the same time, I, I can't believe that you're shocked by that. And this brings me to you, Bob. So being married to a man going into your appointments, what is that like? having to explain who your partner is and both of you be in a doctor's office in, in that waiting room. Yeah, it's. I always say that when I got male breast cancer, I had to come out twice. I'd come out once as a man with a woman's disease. And I also had to come out as a man who is gay, whose partner I've brought to my appointment. I'm so blessed with a great medical team, they understand, they accept the fact that I'm gay and that this is my husband. Well, that's good, Bob. We wanted to let our listeners know that the National LGBT Cancer Network has just closed a comprehensive national cancer survey called OUT in partnership with the Center of Black Equity. It will be so good to read the results and see what can be done differently. This brings me to a question. I want to direct it to Dr. Taylor first, but I'm interested in both Bob and Rainey's perspective about it. What are some of the common heteronormative and cis-normative biases that people from the LGBTQ2 plus community might face when they're seeking healthcare? We've talked about some, but there's a lot going on when it comes to healthcare and how underrepresented this community is. I think support is the, the main one. What we hear a lot is that there's no targeted specific information and things might be very different. So if you're thinking about the look good, feel better program, it's targeted at a very narrow slice of a certain type of woman. What does it mean for, for Bob to look good and feel better in treatment? Or is that even Bob's priority, right? It might not be. But talking about those things. And so the uh, project I'm working on called Queer Cancer, we have a, a website and this is where we develop this conversation is we start talking about what kind of specific supports might be out there for queer and trans folks. And so you know, we're talking to one research participant who was talking about being in treatment as a, as a trans man with breast cancer and all the women that he was being treated alongside with, they were all very upset about losing their hair. And he, I'm really not that worried. I got all these options for like really dapper hats. And so what does it mean to start sharing that information differently in, in, in a supportive way? Instead of saying, all we have is look good, feel better. What would it mean if we started thinking about pride yourself or like, what would it mean to have a program where we look queer, feel better? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Wouldn't that be great? And okay, we could support that. And just that difference in how it is that, that we define that. So I think support is the hugest piece when we have people who are afraid to bring their partners into a, an appointment that they are already probably scared to go to putting off. It's already traumatic in itself. Cancer is already at the time when people, they need a lot of support and they lose a lot of support. Right? I mean, they always say, you find out who your friends are, that sort of thing. And I think it's a really key time that people need that support. And for queer and trans folks, they're already uh, on an uphill battle for that. So I think that's the number one piece around how we see things in a heteronormative system that we can start targeting support and information so that people can access that information. How can I make myself look good and feel better from my social location, not from the presumption of a pharmaceutical or makeup corporations uh, sponsoring a, a program, but what is it that me as an individual can feel better about during my treatment or, or, or that sort of thing. So I think that support piece is where I would go to straight away, but I don't know, Rainey and Bob might have really different experiences. I think I've covered a lot of it, but yeah, just the unrelenting kind of heteronormative <laughs> projection <laughs> that I receive. It's really something. It really is. I have a quick, funny story to relate. One time I was getting an MRI 
and it was back in the day where you have to go through everything. Like, you know, the biggest thing is, are you pregnant? That's on their mind. I remember I had to go through maybe three different holding rooms in a gown to be asked about when was my last period. And because I was still menstrual, I said, I really can't remember. Even though I'd done a pee test, I'd done the whole thing. They're still badgering me about this one thing. We got past the jewelry. We got, are you wearing any of this? And blah, blah, blah. And just being vulnerable in a gown and someone's fully clothed and a desk and they're going through all this stuff just nonstop. When was your last period? And I, till finally I really have to spell it out and say, look, I have never, ever had sex with a man or has any semen been in my vaginal canal? In case anyone's curious, uh, our listeners out there, if you want to know, gold star lesbian. And then they're just like, uh, because now they can't believe their eyes and now I'm crazy, I must be lying. Anyway, I go to another station. I get asked the same questions. Interrogation. Literally, they're hoping for my story to change a little bit. And then, like, the gotcha moment or something. And then this is the kicker. So this is actually my first MRI ever. I'm going into the tube, and there's the tech helping me get in there. And I remember looking up, and I'm scared. Scary first time. She looks down at me, and she goes, You'll meet someone one day. <laughs> then I went into the last thing. <laughs> and I won't forget that. So anyway, there are a lot of gaps in healthcare in general. And again, being a minority, it goes and expect too much. So it's really great that, that we are talking about it. I wish we were talking about it more because one month out of the year is Pride Month, but should be talking about it more, just like we should be talking about other minority that are experiencing bad medicine, really. How can we make it better? But the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Nothing will get done automatically, ever. So hopefully this will hit their ears and, and some will go, I wonder how I could do something differently. It's frustrating that you have to put these types of issues in someone's peripheral to talk about, but I'm glad that it just seems like there's more of a movement. I mean, so I'm pretty active on social and more and more we keep seeing more groups or organizations like Queer and Cancer that just are moving this forward, but not slowly, like you're pushing it. You know, you're a man going for your annual physical and then they start checking your neck for lumps and bumps and things. And they stop at your collarbone. Primary care doctors really need to do a better job of treating the male, whether gay or not, as a whole person. I never got a clinical exam from a primary care doctor. We never discussed breast cancer as a possibility. And whether that's having a specific conversation about their family history and offering the BRCA testing and, and the other genetic tests that are available, but it needs to be talked about. Whether gay or straight or trans, whatever, we all have boobs. <laughs> so right. one's better another. I completely agree. I have two littles of my own 
I have a little girl and a little boy, and mm-hmm. I am also BRCA positive, and I don't want them to be treated differently to avoid certain types of cancer because of, of their gender or their gender identity or any of those things. So it does, especially for my son, I do feel like, Jesus, like, I hope I live till he's 18, God willing, you know, that I can push these doctors to screen him and things like that, and that he'll need to be vocal about doing those types of screenings because usually email breast cancer presents itself as a higher percentage of people who have the BRCA gene. So yeah, I think Bob, you're right that if they would just screen us all the same, because we all have that same anatomy, that it would just be better. Our breast tissue as men is based around the areola. So there's a much finer area to focus on. My surgeon said that nipple sparing surgery is not an option for me because that's where your cancer is. It's around the areola. If we try to leave your nipple, we may be leaving behind breast cancer cells. One of the things I was thinking as you were were talking there, Bob, is that we know in terms of the system not treating patients as as a whole person, you really have patients doing the work to fit themselves into the system that was never designed with them in mind. The system wasn't designed with the patient. And so the patients are constantly fitting themselves and as opposed to the system adjusting um, to make room for the diverse presentation of patients. And just how you're talking about the need to educate primary care providers and so forth, because there's a huge delay for you. And in the Cancer's Margins project I was talking about, we interviewed over 120 people. And one of the things that we found is that time and time again, this is not a quantitative measurement, but it's certainly research anecdotes to back it up, that time and time again, more often folks were diagnosing themselves more than their doctors were. And mostly they had to push for their doctors to recognize that. Or the doctors would say, oh, but it, no, it, it wouldn't hurt though. It's not supposed to hurt. That's probably just a cyst. And they'd be like, okay, no, but seriously, can we just check this out? And so a lot of the activism work that I think that folks have to do for themselves to to get diagnosed. In some ways, I think as I'd like to think, it's not all doom and gloom for the LGBTQ plus uh, community. And I think that some of us are are well prepared for that advocacy because we've had a lifetime of being discriminated against, of being misunderstood uh, by large institutions and systems. In some way, I think that we're better prepared to address that in some ways. And then the last thing I was thinking as you were talking about just education and Rainy will tell you, and if you don't know this, every tampon box comes with cancer information, right? It comes with information of teaching you how to do the breast self-exam and the exact S motion you're supposed to do at that time of the month. And it occurs to me as you're talking, Bob, I'm like, if, if we're going to be treating, you know, both of Natalie's kids equally, then we need to be looking at putting that same breast self-exam information in razor packages or things, where are men going to get this? So thinking about how we mobilize that knowledge in a very public way to large groups of citizens. And there might be there, there might be a, a campaign for something like that that uh, we should maybe approach Gillette for. I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. it. And Absolutely. just I just want to talk about queering cancer really quick, Dr. Taylor. I was so impressed <laughs> reading the resources that you have on the website about what providers can do to not marginalize their patients. The tool on the website is the equality toolkit for providers, something as little as having inclusive forms that patients fill out and inclusion and conversation can make all the difference. And we are continually updating it. So uh, so by the time anyone listens to this, there's going to be some new things on there. We've got some stuff going on for Pride Month. So we're following some of the same things that we've been talking about here. Every week, we're going to look at a different theme. So 
We're going to look at environment, what people can do in the environment or questionnaires. We're going to look at uh, cultural competency. We're going to look at community connections and knowledge and support. So each week we're going to have a, a different theme because exactly like you say, there's so many areas that, that we can address here in terms of that competency and preparing both the system and the patients. Here at the podcast, we obviously care deeply about our mental health care and awareness. And 2020 was the year of years. It was such a tough year. And we're all starting to come out of our COVID cocoons. So the question I have for each of you is, how have you been taking care of your own mental health during this challenging time? I'll speak to that briefly as somebody who's been teaching an intro to mental health course. And I think we need to really look ahead to the, the future. And that's what I've been trying to do, um, is keep future forward. I'm remembering that this is always temporary, no matter how long it's going on. It is a, t- a temporary place. We will connect again, and, and hopefully in better ways. So on a very personal note, uh, we're going to get a dog. I've been looking for a dog. I want to get a dog. It was just part of for me about thinking ahead to the future and making a commitment to someone else's lifetime and making that commitment to remind the brain that this is temporary and it's awful, but it's temporary and this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. First of all, I shacked up with someone who lives in the suburbs in Connecticut, so I was in New York City, and we managed to get together during COVID. So we have a COVID romance story. And that's been wonderful. She has an amazing property. So for me, I'm a loner anyway, introspective and also introverted. And so not a lot changed in terms of socialization. Also because of living with NBC, I've grown accustomed to avoiding people as we're perennially in treatment and maybe use it as an excuse here and there along the way. But I have so enjoyed all of the flocking to Zoom. And I have a group of friends, some of my bandmates that I've been socializing to. I know that isolation is not good for me, so I try to stay connected however I can. Whatever feels the warmest, I go with that. Telemedicine has been great for the mental health and the whole health, which I believe they're connected, and and trying to get some walks in and exercise, and and just taking it a day at a time, really, when things get too crazy. And one of the biggest bummers for me was, oh, I really want to go traveling, and time's a ticking here with this diagnosis. I'm in my third year now. The prognosis is what three to five years, so I'm like, oh, God, I want to get out and live life, but I can't live it the way I want to. And I'll say, How about accentuating the positive? <laughs> you make an actual commitment to cultivate joy. It takes work. It really does sometimes. And I'm just really trying to stay connected any way I can by being involved with this group with my alma mater has been really fantastic getting some community there. I'm really excited that things are starting to open up a bit. Just just things like that. A lot of TV. Yeah. A lot of TV. Lots of TV. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as far as, you know, I go with the whole COVID lockdown, I've tried to be as social as I can. I've loved the fact that we have Zoom and we've been able to carry on things like this podcast. And I'm locally, I'm president of our local neighborhood association this past two years. And I've used Zoom to meet with my board, but we're still maintaining our usual schedule. We do flags on our main street, up and down the street. And with some other projects I'm working on, I've been able to 
keep occupied and try to have some normalcy in a year of abnormal. And then, of course, 2020, the year that keeps on giving, gave me my stage four. I'm doing well on treatment, so I'm very happy for that. And even visiting the doctor's office is a social event. (laughs) And I will be masking forever. Thanks so much to our guests, Bob DeVito, Rainey Ortica, Dr. Evan Taylor, and Kimiko Tobimatsu. The many great resources mentioned in this episode can be found on our episode notes at rmbclife.org. This is our final podcast of season two and represents the 54th episode we have produced over the course of the past 10 and a half months. It's been so rewarding building this little podcast and seeing every member of this team choose their passion, tell their story, and find connection and common cause with the many incredible advocates, researchers, and oncologists who work to make our lives better. We're in awe of our listeners who send us ideas for episodes and who've been with us every step of the way. And we're just getting started. And this summer, look for some bonus pod programming, along with more ways to connect on all our social media platforms, along with a little experiment on Clubhouse. Be sure to sign up for our new newsletter that will be coming out in season three that launches on September 6th. So you will get curated content from the podcast straight into your inbox. As always, we want to hear from you and we want to know what you want us to cover. I'm Lisa Laudico, and while I produce this podcast, it's a team sport, and I feel like I won some crazy lottery every day working with these talented and dedicated individuals. We have been supported expertly by our senior intern and producer, Sarah Mann, who single-handedly streamlined our editorial and production process, and who lived with us in NBC land these past months with grace, laser focus, and good humor. Sarah helped us tell our stories better and let our intern team also find their groove. We are grateful for this season's interns who will be moving on to new opportunities at med school and college. They are Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, and Amy Tedeschi. We are now joined by our new intern, Campbell McKeon. The outstanding graphics, music, and sound design from this season were greatly enhanced by Samantha Silverstein. Jim Kremens continues as our lead sound designer with original music composition. The rest of the podcast team are Bob DeVito, Dar Fagelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every other Monday starting in September and the fun content coming out this summer. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.